You're listening to Sins of Detroit, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Detroit News. Season 1, Motor City Injustice, a look at wrongful convictions that started with investigations by the Detroit Police Department. Episode 2, Devontae Sanford's Road to Freedom, Part 1. I'm George Hunter, the crime reporter for the Detroit News, and that was one of three demonstrations I covered outside police headquarters in Highland Park, Michigan, where people were protesting the hiring of Deputy Chief James Talbert. Here's Deborah Simmons, the Highland Park resident who organized the protests. Uh, The problem is that he is an unethical cop. He has caused this young boy to... uh, have nine years taken out of his life that he'll never get back again. So we feel that we don't want him, Tauber, being able to do that to any other poor black boy, uh, you know, uh, framing them for uh, something they did not do. This is the story of Devante Sanford, who says he was wrongfully accused of a quadruple homicide in a Detroit drug house in 2007 when he was 14 years old. He says he was tricked by police into confessing to the crime that he didn't commit. James Talbert, who was a Detroit police commander at the time, is at the center of the case. Wayne County prosecutors and Michigan State police detectives accused Tolbert of committing perjury to help put Sanford in prison for almost nine years before he was released in 2016 when this alleged perjury was uncovered. The statute of limitations expired before Tolbert could be charged with the crime. Tolbert declined to be interviewed for this podcast. I talked to Devante Sanford a few days after he got out of prison. He told me he resented that Talbert was never held accountable. This man can go about his life and just go do whatever he wants. I mean, this this man like literally like ruined my life. It's like I came home with the chains on still. It's still like sometimes I still got chains on. Sometimes I still got chains on. Was this 14-year-old kid a cold-blooded killer who orchestrated a quadruple homicide in a Detroit drug house all by himself? That's what authorities allege. Sanford was released from prison when it was revealed that Talbert had allegedly lied about a key piece of evidence, a crime scene map showing the location of the bodies in the house. And prosecutors say they were forced to release Sanford from prison because the alleged perjury had tainted the case against him. But to this day, Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy insists there was plenty of other evidence implicating the 14-year-old Sanford in the murders, although innocence advocates and Michigan State Police tell a different story. Bill Proctor, a former Detroit television journalist and now an advocate for the wrongfully convicted, says the Sanford case exposes problems at every step of the criminal justice system. There were just so many elements of this that that would just make Americans ill to know 
that a system where people were sworn, <laughs> where people had training, where people had badges, where people had authority, where people were representing the people of the state of Michigan, where they not only fell short, but they orchestrated, they orchestrated a level of injustice that is unconscionable. There have been a record number of wrongful conviction claims coming out of Detroit in recent years, but this one received the most attention. The first has because this was a 14-year-old quadruple homicide suspect. But then two weeks after Sanford went to prison, the story took a bizarre turn. By this time, Sanford was 15 years old and still trying to get used to the routine in an adult prison in southern Michigan, when back in Detroit, police arrested a hitman named Vincent Smothers, who confessed to 12 murders for hire, including the four for which Sanford had just been convicted. Smothers, who was paid by drug dealers to rub out their rivals, said Sanford had nothing to do with those killings. Now, as you can imagine, when a seasoned hitman came forward and said he was responsible for the murders that had been pinned on a 14-year-old kid, it threw the whole case into chaos. And things got even more confusing when prosecutors only charged Smothers with eight of the murders he had confessed to. They never charged him with the other four, despite the fact that he gave police details only someone involved in the killings could have possibly known, and ballistic evidence that strongly linked the hitman to the killings but prosecutors insisted they had already convicted the right person for those murders, Devante Sanford. Now, this is one of the strangest stories I've ever covered, and it's a long and winding tale, so let's just back up and start at the beginning. On the night of September 17, 2007, four people were gunned down in a dope house on Runyon Street on Detroit's east side. Devante Sanford lived two blocks away, and while homicides were commonplace in that neighborhood, which is one of the most dangerous in the United States, he says he got curious and went outside to see what was going on. Sanford says he was approached by Detroit police homicide detective Mike Russell, who began asking him a series of questions. What's my name? Where do I live? And things like that. Have I heard anything? I told him I didn't know nothing. Commander Tolbert showed up at the scene, and according to everyone involved in the case, including Tolbert, he and Detective Russell drove Sanford around the neighborhood for about three hours, asking him questions. And my police sources tell me that's very unusual for such a high-ranking police official to get that deeply involved in an investigation. Here's Sanford's mother, Tominko Sanford Timmon. This man came and just was riding him around, nothing to do with the crime, his names that I'm not going to mention that Tolbert knew from the neighborhood drug dealers and was asking Devontae about, well, what about this person? What about this person? Eventually, Tolbert drove Sanford back to his house, and Russell got permission from his grandma to take him to police headquarters. Russell has declined to be interviewed, but according to Sanford's mother, the detective lied to her and said her son was not a suspect. They asked him, can they take him down? Not never for questioning, but basically to help them solve this case, to show them pictures of, you know, different things like that. I called down there. I'll never forget. Sergeant Michael Russell answered the phone. I can hear Devontae in the back. 
He like, that's my mama, that's my mama. I get on the phone. He was like, mama, I'm good. They fed me. I'm playing on the computer. You want me to come in? No, mama. And bad judgment that I didn't go. Sanford said at first he was having fun playing on the police computer, but eventually he wanted to go home. He claims Russell tricked him. He says the detective told him he'd release him if he just confessed to the murders and get his boss off his back, give him something to put in his report. And Sanford, who was in special education classes, says he was a gullible 14-year-old and says he trusted the cop, so he provided a confession. But he got all the details wrong, according to David Moran, head of the University of Michigan's Innocence Clinic. Devante's story ended up being that he and three other boys, three other young men, had broken into the house and robbed the participants and um, shot everybody. And he said each of them had a different kind of gun. Well, that didn't match up at all because the uh, ballistics from the scene indicated that there were two types of guns that were used, not four, and the, and the four that Devante uh, gave did not match the, the two types of bullets and shell casings that were found at the scene. He also said that they had thrown their guns into a grassy lot, and the police searched that lot and didn't find anything there. Um, the He gave... Uh, uh, a detail that they had met beforehand at a particular restaurant to plan the uh, the robbery, but that restaurant was cl- had been closed for renovations for weeks. And then when the police went out and arrested the other kids that Devante had named, all of them had rock-solid alibis, and so they were all released within 48 hours of, of being arrested. There was no way Sanford's first confession would have held up in court. So Detective Russell brought him back to police headquarters a second time. Uh, They they said that his grandmother agreed that he could talk without an adult present, but a 14-year-old boy, 5'6", blind in in one eye, who was in special education classes, was interrogated again for many hours, and ultimately they emerged with a, uh, a confession, a video confession. This time around, Police say Sanford gave them the correct details that matched the crime scene. But a video of the interview shows Sanford didn't provide any information to police at all. This confession, as it were, is just Russell reading a series of facts from a piece of paper and Sanford answering yes and uh uh-huh. Sanford never describes the crime in his own words. That same night, Sanford says detectives showed him pictures of the murder victim's bloodied bodies. Those images would live me for the rest of my life. I would never in a million years like forget. Everything was moving so fast. So like I was I was scared, afraid. I was like I, w- I was lost. Everything was moving like just so fast. They showed me the pictures of like other bodies, how the bodies was placed. Um and they told me um to put um to draw the bodies and the diagram, how I seen them on the picture. Like, and that's exactly what I did. Um, he drew the diagram, um, yeah. Tober. And once I put the, the picture, once, I, um, once they showed me the pictures, I drew the bodies, um, I drew the bodies on the diagram. And once I did that, um, Tober was like, I told y'all, see, I told y'all. The drawing of the crime scene diagram would later prove to be crucial to the case 
But for the time being, Sanford said he was starting to realize the police were not being his friends. So he says he asked for an attorney. I, I believe I asked, was that Sergeant Russell? He laughed at me. By this time, several hours had passed, and Sanford's mother said she began wondering what was going on. I called them, and I asked them about my son. Oh, your son been transferred to juvenile. Your son been charged with, I think it was four counts of murder, first-degree murder. First-degree murder. First-degree murder. For more Detroit crime coverage, breaking news, features, and sports, please click on www.detroitnews.com. The Detroit News, our reporting, your stories. Call 1-800-395-3300. So he was charged and based entirely on the confession. Again, there was zero other evidence that Devontae Sanford had committed the crime other than his confession, which was manifestly false in just about every possible verifiable detail. Uh, unfortunately, Devontae's family hired for him the worst attorney in the world, a man named Robert Slamica. Sanford's legal troubles went from bad to worse after his family hired Bob Slamica, who was censured 17 times in his career and suspended twice before he was finally disbarred in 2018 for multiple ethics violations. I've tried many times to interview Slamica, but he's always refused. A Dave Moran of the Innocence Clinic says Slamica grossly mishandled the Sanford case. It never occurs to Bob Slamica to move to suppress the confession, and there were multiple grounds upon which Devante's confession should have been suppressed. He was a 14-year-old youth. The U.S. Supreme Court has recognized that young people are especially vulnerable to um, false confessions, and that youth is a very relevant factor in deciding whether a confession was involuntary. And this was after two long interrogations where, he, where there was no one present on his side. Uh, Devante had developmental disabilities, was in special education, which is another factor which made the confession likely involuntary. Devante told people that he had asked for an attorney during the interrogation, which under the Miranda rules should have stopped the interrogation. So there were multiple grounds that the confession should have been suppressed, and without the confession, there was no case. But he didn't do any of that, and he didn't really challenge the confession at all. According to Sanford and his mother, the lawyer began pressuring him to plead guilty to second-degree murder. He'd tell us one day, I need Devontae to take this plea, because if Devontae don't take this plea, he'll never have an out date. It's going to be a jury with 12 white people, and when they see this black boy up here on this stand, he don't stand a chance. And he kept telling me, like, you know, um... I'm, I'm really cool with the judge. You're not gonna get that much time. You might only get like 15 years, you know. You're young, you got a, you got a shot to get out of prison. Devontae kept saying, I wanna get on the stand. I wanna get on the stand. That's something else that I live with every day. I made another, a, a bad choice. Um, we took a plea. Um, he was sentenced to 90 years at the age of 15. 
So that first night in prison, describe that to me. You're a 15 year old kid. You're an adult. What prison was it you sent to? I, was, I went to Jackson Quarantine. Jackson. What's that first night like? Jackson is kind of set up like Charleston, like really? with all the bars, and like it's really, really loud, and so to actually be sitting in that like, like it smells horrible, like everybody talking and screaming and. And the night I, I sat on my, I couldn't even sleep. I sat on my bunk, and once all the lights went off, that's when it really hit me. Like, and I, I started crying, like, whoa. And I looked out, and only thing I could see is bars in the concrete. I, that's when it hit me, like, like I'm in, I'm in prison. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Devante Sanford's Road to Freedom Part 2 and thank you for listening to Sins of Detroit. Ooh.